All right, Dave, how are you doing today? I am tired, man. Deep into this cut. <laughs> uh, tired as in diet fatigued or sleep deprived or both? I think it's actually more sleep. I don't know. This last week, every time I've been going to sleep, I feel like, all right, tonight's night, I'm going to get good sleep. <laughs> and then I wake up and I mean, I always wake up several times in the night to go to the bathroom. And then this time my like four to 5 a.m. wake up, I'm just not falling back asleep. So I think it's just my stimulus to wake up is just so low at this point that it's, it's hard to fall back asleep. Um, let me ask you this. How are you doing in terms of caffeine use? I really only have I have like one cup of coffee probably like once a week so really none. really yeah I don't I don't do much with caffeine huh okay because um that's what I I kind of realized that I mean like you I am probably genetically not a good sleeper and that is usually the first thing to go mm -hmm. whatever happens whether I'm dieting or stressed out or I hear some bad news or whatever like the sleep is always the first thing to go and I only sleep well if I'm psychologically relatively at ease and when I'm well fed and all of those things right. but what I had to realize is all that extreme lethargy during my photo shoot diet that I experienced near the end probably a good chunk of that was due to my shitty sleep. Yeah. And probably a good chunk of my shitty sleep at least was because I way over abused the shit out of caffeine. Yeah, I think it's pretty common. I mean, you know, I probably would too if it wasn't for like my previous scare with my heart. Um, yeah, I love when I do have caffeine. Um, I, I say like when I have that coffee, it gives me like an hour of feeling amazing, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is so I do it before like my heavy workout, which is on Saturdays. Um, and other than that, though, I, I almost never have it, but I love it. And, you know, I think I don't know if you saw recently, Lyle and I were talking about the ECA stack. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was actually surprised when I posted about it in his group. And a lot of people were talking about how they just love it. Some people, one guy was on it for like a year straight, wow. which is crazy to me. Um, a, one girl was taking double the recommended dose, which is already like a fairly high dose. And like, you know, they were saying how much it helped them, which I'm sure it does. I just, it's not something I really want to get into. Man, I'm super bitter hearing that because I tried so <laughs> hard to get my hands on eph ephedrine. And yeah. I can just not get it anywhere. Um, in your country? In, in this country, it's not available. Um, I know that it is, it is available in some sort of a medication. I forgot what it's for, but I think for some, some asthma medication, but that's not available here. And then I found, found one potential place where I could order it in a neighboring country, but that didn't deliver here. So <laughs> I kind of just gave up on it, which is really sad. Yeah, I guess in certain places like here, I, I'm pretty sure it's fairly easy to get. It's it's under Broncade is the name of the drug you're probably thinking. But yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty accessible. I have a friend who uses it all the time when he cuts. But I, I tried it once when I was like 20 and it, it did help largely with energy. Um, you know, just so I was, I'm sure neat went up by taking it. Energy was up. So I just wasn't like, you know, just lethargic all day. But at this point, it's, it's not like it just makes it easier. So for me, it's like I even... I have more understanding, I think, of people who take things that allow them to achieve something they couldn't otherwise achieve. So, like, when I look at people who it's like, okay, like, you know, I want to be the biggest person I can, so I'm going to take steroids. It's like, okay, like, I, you know, whether or not you want to get into, like, the whole, I mean, there's obviously a huge debate to be had on whether it's worth it or not. But if you decided that you have that goal, that's a goal you can't attain otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, some of these, like, people are taking, like, massive amounts of, like thyroid hormone, clen, um, you know, maybe ECA stack, all these things. And it's like, for the most part, that's just making the work easier, which is, you know, fine if that's what you want to do. But I guess it's less relatable to me because I would rather just put in more effort and not have the risk associated with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you... I don't know if you say that because the costs might outweigh the benefits because it has side effect risks, of course. Um, personally, if I could just take a pill which would just turn off my hunger and um, not feel, I would not feel like I'm dieting at all, I would take it in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I should clarify because that, that's actually something when I was, I was talking with somebody else about this and I was thinking about that. It's not, when I say that, that is not for me saying like, you know what, it's all about hard work and like you should want to work hard. Like, no, like, to me, that that's BS. Like, <laughs> get the job done as well as you can. And, you know, there's no reason to work harder than you need to. So I'm specifically saying because there are known risks. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's actually, I mean, obviously it relates back to the podcast that we did together on your channel about whether we would take PEDs, but it's so interesting for Mm -hmm. me to always, whenever I hear an argument about what's ethical to take for a bodybuilding contest, for example, and what isn't, and then I just keep going down and down on this rabbit hole of how long, until when is this argument consistent, logically. Like, again, it was an Eric Helms interview that I heard on some sort of bodybuilding channel. And he said, you know, if there is any compound that gives you a very significant advantage with getting ready for a bodybuilding contest, whether it's for fat loss or muscle retention, then it should not be allowed. Right. And then, I don't know, shouldn't we then standardize people for their genetic hunger levels and their genetic set point and whatever? And make sure that all the the playing field is completely equal. So if someone has just genetically much lower appetite and just walks around at 8% naturally, then let's make it harder for him. Like that guy's only allowed to eat like white bread and table sugar for his carb source and whey protein for his protein source to make him hungrier, right? Like (laughs) it's such a, it's interesting. But yeah, I agree with you. Like it's probably just for getting lean. It's not worth taking on significant risks Um, and yeah, I would probably just try out ephedrine to see how it feels. Because honestly, caffeine is really great. But during most cuts, at least at one point, I kind of bite. It bites me in the ass in that, you know, you're getting to that perpetual vicious cycle of you sh- sleep like shit. So you caffeinate the fuck up because you're hungrier and also you're just tired as hell. And right. then <laughs> eventually I get to the point where it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't really suppress my appetite anymore. It doesn't make me more energetic. It accomplishes only one thing, which is that I cannot sleep the next night either. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's, um, so yeah. Yeah, well, that's why I stopped drinking it in general. Like even, I mean, I used to drink a lot of coffee, like when I was pretty young, but the problem was I just felt like, you know, if my baseline energy was like a seven out of 10, it's like, okay, it temporarily brought me up to a nine out of 10. But then after months, it was now I needed it to even be at a seven out of 10. So, and I think that's like a lot of America or just the world. Like people are just drinking coffee just so that they're not lethargic. And I don't know if they're, they have any more energy on average than people who don't drink coffee. I think they've just primed themselves to almost need it now. So I like to save it for workouts and there is a level that people don't seem to adapt to. Uh, obviously, it's not going to, it's going to be individualistic, but I think it's something like one to 200 milligrams is a level that a lot of people will continually feel and not completely adapt to. Um, so, you know, a cup a day, I'm not saying it's like a problem, but the people who are just consistently having like four or five cups a day, yeah, I don't think it's great. Yeah, I, I am probably a slow metabolizer of caffeine because it's almost baffling how I can feel so shit all throughout the day, even though I had like three monsters. And then I go to bed and I can just feel that, God damn it, I am not tired. Yeah. Or at least I'm not sleepy. I don't have that. And that's after popping in a melatonin pill, you know? Right. And I'm kind yeah. of reading and it's like, God damn it. Like, this is the time when normally if everything goes well, I just have that feeling of, oh my God, I need to put the phone down because I'm just passing out. Yeah. And I just, I'm not even close to that. And then somehow I fall asleep and then wake up at... I don't know, 4 a.m. or something, right, right. and I just feel super wrecked, and I can feel that I will feel like absolute crap if I get out of bed now, but then I'm also way too restless to fall back asleep, so it's just terrible. Right. So <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to limit myself to maybe like two, 250 at most, and then, yeah, limiting it like maybe 10, preferably more like 12 hours before bed, and then I'm generally fine. Anyway, so how is your cut otherwise? It's actually been going pretty well. I uh, started at 205. I'm down to actually this morning 185.4, but that's probably a artificial low. Um, but probably down about 18 pounds now. Strength is still, you know, I wouldn't say it's like amazing, but it's it's good. I mean, on the whole, it's been going pretty well. You know, obviously never fully satisfied, but no no real complaints other than just like the food focus has gone up quite a bit. Um, I've definitely been thinking about like different cheat meals and things like, which is one of those things where, like I said, it's more just like a distraction. It's just kind of annoying. It just makes it like, we, we might talk about average happiness throughout Balkan or cutting. It's something I talked about on the podcast before, mm. but you know, if you actually look at like the enjoyability of your life, this is for a specific goal. So I think it's fine. You know, I mean, this is like something where, okay, you are accomplishing something and right now that is more worth it to me than just like eating a bunch of food which if i continuously ate a bunch of food eventually just kind of loses its appeal anyway um but i will say that on average you know when you're just like hungry all the time tired all the time you're thinking about your next meal all the time you know that's not like a great way (laughs) to live so 
obviously that that would be more of a warning against like the chronic dieting that a lot of people unfortunately do. Um, but you know, I'll probably have another two months of cutting and then more or less just stabilize. Yeah. I mean, it must be empowering at this point that you lost so much weight, um, which is of course weight loss is not the goal, but fat loss, but still like 20 pounds almost that's 10 kilograms. Just thinking of that is, is pretty empowering probably at this point. It's for me, it's always interesting whenever I do a cut is it has these different stages where in the beginning, it's like so hard to even commit to it, even when it's not not like a crazy, not like a year long diet that you have to embark on, not like you have to lose 100 pounds or something. But still, it's so hard to oversee the whole process. And then the first couple of weeks, it just drags on. And then you get to that in between stage where you don't look lean yet, but you're not big anymore. So you're kind of just soft and it looks annoying. We are definitely right, right. not at that stage anymore. I mean, I saw like two pictures of you and you, you look pretty good. So you could even stop cutting now if you wanted, but <laughs> I guess you want to get a bit leaner still. And, and then you have that point where the diet physiologically is the hardest to tolerate, but you're actually looking pretty good. And so it's, it's almost daily changes in the mirror or at least a couple of times a week, you will see some new kind of benchmark that you hit. So, um, are you at that point? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to a broader topic on even like motivation in general. You know, you get all these people who, you know, without naming names, they, they talk about how dedicated they are and how they've worked so hard. And it's like, yeah, you have amazing genetics when everything is going well for you. When you're blowing past like old records and everybody around you, it's easier to stay motivated. I'm more impressed with the people who it's like, man, like you really don't have like gifts for this endeavor or whatever that endeavor is, but you have just been pushing and grinding even when you've stopped seeing significant results. To me, that's more impressive because like, like you said, like right now, this is probably, you know, like I'm pretty happy with how my midsection is starting to look and that keeps it motivating. So, you know, even if I'm suffering, if it's like, wow, I lost two pounds last week. I'm ready to lose a pound this week. And, and this doesn't have to be, you know, between individuals. This could be within an individual, like I'm mentioning here with the diet. Like I was kind of stuck at like 193 to 195 for several weeks. And I was like, man, like this is miserable, like the dieting, but it's so much worse <laughs> because I'm not seeing the results. Whereas like, you know, one of the arguments for rapid fat loss and all that stuff is that it's like, man, it does suck, but you know, you're going to lose fat, right? There's just no way you're not going yeah. to. And so it's like, like the last two weeks, I've averaged literally like 1500 calories. And I'm actually kind of surprised at how like, okay, I feel again, lethargic. But other than that, like strength's been okay. And it's like, yeah, that does suck. But I know I'm losing that fat. And I'm seeing the fat come off. And like, you know, probably every other workout, I'm like looking a little bit leaner versus just to like, you know, 0.5 pounds a week or something. It's just so tedious. Sometimes it's harder to stay motivated. Yeah. And that 1500 calories, is that something that you went to now because it was needed to make progress? Or is this some rapid fat loss phase within the fat loss overall? Or how is that? It's probably both. I mean, I don't do as much like I don't do a ton of cardio. I really don't like cardio. I used to do a lot of it. But I don't think a ton of cardio is generally super effective. I think there's like a amount that you could like I could definitely be doing more. I don't even do cardio every day. I think like if you're doing like a half an hour of cardio every single day, like that's a pretty good amount. Once you start getting much more than that, like there's gonna be plenty of people who recommend that or maybe even need it. But for me, I, I don't like to do a ton of it. So I'm only doing a couple sessions per week and then my three workouts per week, three or four workouts per week. So I could probably diet on about 1800, I would say, and still lose weight. I think if I was eating at like 2000 to 2200, that might just be like the bottom end of my buffer range where I'm just kind of maintaining. But yeah, I could get by on 1800. But again, it's like, yeah, I probably could and, and maybe I'll lose some. But I, again, I'd, I'd almost rather just like push it at this point and just say, you know what, like, I know I'm going to lose the fat. This is assuming you're not losing muscle. Now, if I was having horrible workouts, uh, which, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised to find that I haven't been. And maybe that's because of the low volume I do in general. If I was having these like crappy workouts, then no, I wouldn't be eating 1500 calories because I, I'd be worried that that was the reason for my muscle loss. But because it hasn't been there, I'd rather just push harder. Yeah, um, that's pretty low. Like 1800 calories is still less than 10 calories per pound. Um, what is, uh, do you track your step count in any way or do you track your activity in any way? Yeah, I mean, just going by my phone, which is, 
I've found to be reasonably accurate. I'm sure it's not perfectly accurate, but I don't do that many steps. I mean, on an average day, I think like if I look back at this week, the average for this week was like 6,000 steps. So that's mm-hmm. literally just, you know, me walking around my office, me like occasionally going on walks. Um, you know, I was at the beach yesterday, but nothing, nothing crazy. Now that's not counting the cardio I do. So I'll probably do, you know, three 30 minute sessions on the bike and that doesn't, you know, count towards the steps or anything like that. So it's, I'm, I would say I'm moderately active, but it's nothing like when you were saying you were doing like 17,000 steps a day or and double workouts and crazy stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's I just did a quick math. So I was doing I was aiming for 15,000 as a minimum and often I overshot that, but let's say it's 15,000. So if we assume that 2,000 steps is roughly 100 calories, then that would be about 450 calories more that I get to eat compared to you with 6,000 steps uh, of, of course, it doesn't work out like that exactly, right. but let's assume it does. Then actually the math would come out just right. Cause I lost weight at 2,200 calories and that was actually pretty fast as well. So probably, probably it's, um, there are other things that made me expend a bit more energy and probably some genetic factors are playing into it as well. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it obviously doesn't work out like that perfectly. I think the body frustratingly does tend to adapt pretty well to increase activity past a certain point. But I mean, it, it certainly does something, you know, maybe it's only a difference of like 300 calories, but it's something plus you were doing, I think, weren't you doing like daily workouts or even double sessions at times? Yeah, I mean, it was basically, yeah, seven days a week for the most part. And occasionally I did the double session, but that was just some unique days. Yeah. And what I'm finding is that I, I'll start off the workout and I'm fine. But I mean, as we talked about, I don't really do much volume. I mean, my, <laughs> I, I definitely take too long to do my workouts. Like yesterday was my upper body workout and it took me two hours to do that workout. And it's only, 18 sets so it's, it was three sets of overhead press three sets of pull-ups three sets of bench three sets of rows three sets of curls and three sets of skull crushers that took me two hours now part of that's because i'm in no rush like i'm at my house i'm just kind of hanging out i'm writing down like my sets on my laptop like in between sets so it's it's not you know it's fine i don't have any reason to to rush through it but it's not like the super fast-paced thing but after that point man i'm just like i don't want <laughs> to do anymore like especially now because I'm dieting. Um, I mean, I guess that could be an argument for having more frequency. So every day you get to do something without having to be super long. But mm-hmm. I just, you know, personally, I get to a point, I'm just like, yeah, like, that's good anymore. And I, I would just be really dragging ass. Right, right. Yeah, well, uh, anyway, so good luck for the last two months, uh, dieting wise, anyway, right, right. Um, just one thing that I, I wanted to mention, you mentioned the lower volume. And Mm-hmm. We were talking about doing these reaction videos on YouTube and how that might be a good way to generate some views. And I think I will do some in the future as well, because actually I always wanted to. It's, it's kind of a shame because the reaction videos that I would actually want to do are more so from the things that people in our kind of circles said. Right. <laughs> so uh, not the Thomas Delauers of the fitness world, but more like the whatever Mike Israel tells of the fitness world. Um, but you know, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to do that. I did it once and it was a quick regret (laughs) when I did that, but what was it on? You know, if you want to say, Oh, it was on uh, Mike Israel's volume landmarks concept, like the MEV MRV thing. And it was not, not inflammatory by any means. Maybe a little bit. I became a bit cynical by the end of the video. I was, um, (laughs) sounded like I'm making fun of him, which was not, which was honestly not my intention. And then, you know, it, it looked bad because then all of a sudden, like months later, I saw someone linking it to Mike Israel. And then uh, like, Mike, what do you think about this video? And then Mike <laughs> tagged me in and said, uh, hey, Abel, like I can come on your podcast and we can discuss it. <laughs> I was like, ah, like this, I, I, <laughs> it, it would affect me kind of in a weird way if I saw someone doing a video of something I said without even discussing it with me first. Right. So... I would rather not not poop where I want to eat from, right? Right, so, right. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so um, what was I going to say? Yeah, the I just tuned into your Brett Schoenfeld interview the other day, and uh, it was interesting how he said that he questions the lack of benefits from failure training that we see in the literature in many times. Right. And honestly, that is still one thing that I'm just so skeptical about, how we just seem to take it for granted when people say that people trained to failure in studies. And I'm not saying that it never happens, or I'm not even saying that most of the time it doesn't happen. But when I see a post from Greg Knuckles or someone saying, 
So one thing we should take into account is that most resistance training research is done with participants training to failure. And I'm like, man, just that sentence in and of itself just seems so unlikely to me. Uh, but I don't know. What, what do you think about that personally? I think that that's probably true. I mean, I have run a training study and I mean, half of that study was just like coaching the individuals on how to train, you know, and something that like I've, I've brought up on the podcast before, but it actually always bothered me when I was young and still now when people would say like, oh, like, you know, you're young, you don't know how to train like about like my high school self or like, you know, these kids don't know how to push themselves. And I think that's a generally true statement, but I, I genuinely don't think it applied to me. Like I was killing myself in high school, like even like I'm talking like 13 to 15 years old, like I was pushing as hard as I possibly could. Um, and again, I, I talked with Lyle about this a few years, maybe a few months ago. And we were saying how I think the sports background is part of that because I was just had this like, you know, go hard or go home mentality. So I think some people are like that, but I think the average person you get in like these training studies who don't have that real background, they just, they feel that something's hard and they stop. And you know, when you're in these training studies, you have the people like coaching you through and you say, okay, keep pushing, keep pushing. And they're really trying to get you to go hard. But you know, I mean, some of these people, I'm just telling you my personal experience with it, like they, they will stop before it's like true failure. Or if they're just really uncoordinated and you're like, you're like, okay, going to failure on a squat. They're just so uncoordinated that it's their form is breaking down and everything before they're really, you know, the muscles are failing. So I'm sure there are examples where people are really pushing, but like on average, are they pushing like, like let's say like a John Meadows is pushing the gym? I, I highly doubt it. And like I was saying with Brad and, and he said himself, like, you just can't discount when all of these people are saying that. And I, <laughs> I don't know if you, you want to mention this or not, but I, there's that reps in reserve um, Instagram account. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that you can gain muscle staying like four reps in reserve. Like I'm absolutely sure you can, you know, if you're a beginner to intermediate. But do I really think those weeks are that valuable where you're an advanced level trainee and you're starting a mesocycle at four reps in reserve and then three reps in reserve? Not really. Do I think it's hurting you? No, I think it's absolutely enough stimulus. I mean, that's the other thing people don't really consider. Like, I mean, this could go in a whole rabbit hole, but you can allow a lot of ineffective training that just kind of sets you up for and, and maybe Mike would even like agree with this but like you know you look at those studies where they'll compare people who trained continuously versus people who like trained for six weeks and then took a total two weeks off and then trained six weeks then another two whole weeks off and there was like no difference in results by the end of a year or something like that and so it, it a lot of it is just as long as you have those periods that are intense it's enough of a stimulus. So that might be all you're seeing with those weeks of four RIRs. It's like, no, this is not to get me growth. This is literally just getting me, you know, a break basically and getting me back into the, you know, the gym or whatever if you took a week off. And then those final weeks are where you're really pushing things. And again, if you're at an advanced stage, you're not really growing much anyway. So I think it's fine. I just don't think there's any like magic to it. And, and I think that you see that a lot with the training to failure and stuff. It's like when you're that advanced, I do think that you have to pull some things out of the hat to get any type of growth at all, really. Yeah. I mean, just on the failure thing, um, you know, I, I have no doubts that there are studies where the supervisors are actually yelling at the participants and are motivating them and they are really not letting them wuss out and they can distinguish between Okay, just the muscle is burning a bit, so I cannot do another rep versus actual failure. So I'm not I'm not saying that <laughs> there are no studies that are very well controlled in that regard, but I know, I mean, I have taken through taken just friends of mine through sessions before. And you know, it's very hard if you're a nice person to be a dick to someone who right. you can actually see that he has like three, four reps more in the tank and he says like, oh, I cannot do another one. Because probably that's the point like on lateral raises, let's say, because probably their delts started to burn a little bit. It started to become a bit painful. And he just, you know, basically does the same motion as you would do if you actually fail a rep at the concentric and he just, you know, drops the weight. And I'm like, dude, you had at least four more in the tank. Like the weight didn't even slow down before and all of a sudden you're failing. That's not how it's working, right? So, right. Um, so I think when, 
I think they are just claiming it a little bit too easily. Like, yeah, and by the way, the participants trained to failure. It's like, well, I would need a lot more clarification. Like, how did you ensure the failure was actually achieved? What do you actually mean by failure? Is it the point where you fail a rep and you have to dump the bar? Or is it the point where it's just a zero or IR? So you could not complete another rep at all. So you just stop the weight, the repetition, the set there. So just much more clarifications on that front. And then... Um, you know, when recently the effective reps concept came under more and more scrutiny. And, you know, there are like many studies that show that training, you know, closer to failure is not necessarily more effective than training, say, four reps away from failure. And to me, that's one of those things where, okay, maybe the effective reps concept in the way that it was laid out is incorrect. Fine. I'm totally willing to accept that. But the idea that it doesn't matter at all whether you train one rep away from failure versus four reps away from failure is one of those things where, you know, that meme that I, I sent you where you're not smart enough to, like, specifically tell the other person why they are wrong, but you know that it's wrong. Right. <laughs> like, like, evolutionarily, logically, just in no way does that make sense. Yeah. But apparently there are studies that show that. So, yeah, it's one of those things that I'm absolutely not willing to take that at face value. Um, it's one of those things like, okay, let's investigate that and let's find out why the discrepancy exists. I think I just want to add one point there is it, this kind of goes back. If you look at like what Brad and I were talking about with the volume and non-responders and he was saying he wants to look more into that research and it really does seem like the non-responders, and this is a whole thing you can get into too, but like when you add more volume, you have fewer non-responders and on average, you know, like 15 sets works better than five sets. And I'm not doubting that research, but again, one, how intense are they pushing? You know, you see this with endurance training and stuff. That's, but are they like doing sprints or are they just jogging? And when you see it with lifting, it's like, man, I just, I don't see somebody doing, you know, like 20 sets to all out failure truly being better for a lot of people. It, it could be, but I, obviously it's going to depend on intensity. But then secondly, it's like, so where does this entire body of literature or not literature, sorry, like of anecdote come out where... I mean, for years and years, people recommended that these hard gainers, they had lower volume, focused more on recovery. And the thing you have to consider is these studies, a lot of times, they're not altering diet. And that's, I'm not saying they should alter diet, that would just be too many variables. But what I'm saying is like, if you're gaining weight and you're weight training, you're going to gain lean body mass. Like nobody just gains 100% pure fat. So then you have to consider like, okay, so is this person then able to, you know, if I have somebody now who I'm training who we dropped their volume to probably like half of what it was and their strength is going up and it's not, it's only been a month so far, but their strength is going up well. And I'm, I'm at the level where I want with them and I might add a little bit of volume, but I don't ever see getting to this, like this individual to somebody to a point where they're doing like, you know, 15 to 20 sets per body part, at least not for any, you know, not anytime soon. And I really do think that, you know, you talked about, you know, what you're seeing in the studies and you just kind of wonder about it. I think obviously the intensity, but I also just think going back to not being able to ignore what we see in real life is there's just so many anecdotes of people saying, you know, I was doing all this volume. I dropped it. Now I really push myself. And I mean, I don't know if you're overly familiar with DC training like dog crap training with Dante Trudell, but you know, that is a fairly low volume, reasonably high frequency routine. And it's just all out balls to the walls training. And I feel like I see more people succeed with stuff like that than I do with like really high volumes and, you know, saying three or four reps away from failure, just personally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, and part of part of it is just the more volume you do, the more likely it is that you will have to tweak a lot more things. You will have to take a lot more kind of the more complexity you introduce, the more room there is for screwing things up. I mean, and, and I don't think that you have to take it to the extreme. Like, I don't think you have to do something super, super minimalistic because that's the other problem that, um, you know, I followed some of these schemes earlier on. It was super low volume trained very close to failure and you just tried to add weight to the bar and very quick quickly what happened to me is I would go to the gym three days a week and you know went up to about an 82.5 kilogram bench for four to six reps and after some time the weight just went nowhere I could just not add more weight to the bar 
And that was the point where I had to increase volume a little bit. I also increased frequency a little bit. It wasn't a crazy big jump, but going from, say, three, four sets a week to about 10 sets a week, maybe eight to 10 sets, and all of a sudden things started working again. And I think, um, so you don't have to go crazy with it, but um, yeah, I, I do think that too many people jump the gun too fast on these super high volume, super complex periodization type stuff. And, you know, I mean, most, most, it is true in general that most people don't look big and jacked because most people don't have amazing genetics, but I very frequently see these guys not looking big and jacked. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough when you start using that example because one of my problems I have with, I mean, it's not just the fitness industry, it's really like everything, but people will say things like, I mean, I've heard Ben Pakalski talk like this. I've heard Mike Israel talk like this. Just in general, people say, how many times have you seen this? And this being an example of something that adds to their point, right? So maybe Ben Pakalski is like, how many times do you see people, you know, complain about their results, but they're not even sleeping right and all these things. And then like, I, I actually pointed it out with Mike Isertel, where he said on Steve Hall's podcast about uh, two times a day training. And he said, you know, how often do you have these people where, you know, they have these great backs and they're lacking arm development. And it's like, well, do you do arms at the end of your workout? You do. Okay. Well, maybe you should do arms at a different session. And to me, I was like, dude, like, if anything, I see the opposite. I see in on average, we see way more bros out there with good arms lacking back development. Like that's way more common. So it was such a strange thing to hear him say that to me because I was like, I, I really do see the opposite. Number one. But number two, when you're dealing with a sample size of thousands and thousands of people, you're going to have examples of all of that. You're going to have, you know, I could just come up with any line of reasoning and find examples of that and say, see, this is why you should never do deadlifts. Because if you look at this, how many times have we seen X, right? And so I don't in general like to use that kind of reasoning, but I think it can be used to justify things that aren't completely necessary. And obviously that's why we do have studies, right? Because yeah. when you have just anecdote, everybody's going to have a bias and their own anecdotes that they've seen. Yeah, exactly. But the main thing is that whenever you're using an argument like, have you ever seen anybody who is big and jacked and does X? It's mm -hmm. like, well, most people are not big and jacked, period, no matter what they're doing. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, and it's usually someone with great genetics who responded super well to whatever they were doing who says that. And it's like, well, do, do you see people looking like me? Says Kino Buddy or says whoever, Phil Heath or Ben Pakolsky mm -hmm. or, or someone like that. And then, well, yeah, but most people are not like you. Um, you know, I, I was speaking with Dante at one point and and i've seen him rant about this before where people tend to forget what got them to where they are right and so you see that with balkan all the time you got all these guys mm -hmm. who say oh you know i think i should stay lean and we, we've probably talked about this before but it's like how many of you who are saying that you like to stay lean and it's not necessary to bulk up how many of you got to where you are by never bulking up now again that itself is not an argument for it, but it, it's still a point, you know, just because somebody did something doesn't mean it's the reason they got there. But I still believe that like, man, everybody I know, like almost everybody in this industry has at some point bulked up and gotten fat, not fat, but you know, but by our standards, and we can all sit there and say, Oh, well, you know what, like, it wasn't necessary, I could have stayed leaner. And maybe you could have but to me, that's like when we all grew the most for the most part, you know, I mean, I bulked up to 220, biggest and strongest I ever was. Um, everybody on 3DMJ has gotten like pretty soft in the past and put on a ton of size. I mean, look at Alberto Nunez, right? He, everybody knows him as staying lean all year round. That guy at like five, what is he, five eight or something like that was like 240, you know, lifting crazy heavy weights. So I'm sure that period was when he put on the most size. And going back to like, you know, just forgetting what got you there in terms of how people train now, we've talked about people who use gear. They kind of assume, oh, well, I probably would have gotten close to this naturally. It's like, no, you just haven't realized that you put on, you know, three pounds of muscle, five pounds of muscle, another three pounds of muscle over the years. And so everything you're doing is kind of working. So now you might be implementing these methods thinking they're so great when it's like, they, they might be great. They might be getting you that extra 1% now, but that's not how you put on 95% of your size. Yeah, yeah. Since you mentioned this, uh, we were just talking about this, how the people who say drugs only help a little bit, <laughs> they... They lose perspective. They, because probably what happens in a lot of cases is, yeah, sure, there are those crazy transformations when someone does the first cycle and they put on 10 kilos in a month or 
whatever, maybe, maybe not, not something as crazy, but something drastic where no somewhat reasonable person would say that, okay, this is not an insane amount of muscle to gain, which there is no way that you could gain any, anything similar to that naturally. So obviously there are those cases. But then probably a lot of them are just making slow, steady gains. Maybe right. they're putting on like a pound a month, two pounds a month or something. So, you know, someone will put on 10 pounds in a year, which is, you know, they look at that and, well, that's less than a pound a month on average. I mean, sure, the drug helped a little bit, but surely I could have gained something similar to this naturally. And it's like, and they, I'm not saying that they don't know how the natural condition is, because probably many of them have been advanced natural lifters before, but they probably have not taken things, or not many of them have taken things to the extent that someone like an Eric Helms did, who literally had to wait nine years to put on maybe six pounds of muscle, which six pounds is a lot, but in nine years, that means on average, he gained maybe, you know, a pound every other or every year and a half. Oh my God. I saw this on, um, do you remember Jerry Ward from BioS3? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's funny how like, you know, when I started the podcast, I was like, okay, I just want to be like very proper all the time. Not really, but like, I, I would always speak my mind, but I've gotten more outspoken <laughs> and I have no problem saying that Jerry Ward is, is just one of the biggest morons I've seen in the industry. <laughs> and I remember him saying he was like, so he's like five, nine or something like that. And he was like a very lean 195. And he was like, you know, he, he's used everything in the books. He'd use myostatin inhibitors, GH, insulin, steroids, just everything. And, you know, he was my example for two things. One was how people have such a distorted view of what's possible because he says himself that when he was natural, he was blowing past his friends, that he was winning like natural teenage competitions. And even then, with all of that, all of the gear, massive amounts of gear for decades, he still only competed at like 205. So and, and he was also saying how he never really got completely shredded. He never got like completely diced. So you got to think all of that. And you're still talking about 205, which is why, like, you know, a lot of people would question Lane Norton because it's like, okay, so you're 195. Now, I don't really have a problem believing Lane is natural, but just as an example, like that's only 10 pounds difference. And, you know, somebody who's used a ton of gear and had good genetics with Jerry Ward. So that was just one thing in general, like people just so just mischaracterize like what is possible. But number two, he would then once he came off and he was on TRT still. So then he was like 190, 195. And he was trying to say, like, you know, what you like, I'm basically where I was or where I would have been naturally. I just have to stay on the TRT because I've used gear for so long. And then he was saying how, like, when I was natural, you know, 25 years ago, I was 170. I'm only 190 now. You think I couldn't have put on one pound of muscle a year? Are you kidding me? Of course I could. And it's like, you know, to us, to you and me, it's like you have to be brain dead to believe that. You think you would have put on a pound of muscle a year for the next 20 years after you'd already trained naturally for 10 to 15 years? I mean, it's it's laughable. But a lot of these guys, they genuinely believe that because they think, well, that just it makes sense. I would have just kept going up. But it's 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 frustrating, I think, for people like us, because it's like you have such a distorted view and you're then sharing and spreading that distorted view. Yeah, exactly. They just don't realize how normal that is for a natural lifter to train for 10 years. And after that, you keep going to the gym and just nothing is happening. And um, that's and it's interesting because I used to think about this a lot, like how must one of these genetic freaks feel who has just crazy good genetics and they just keep growing and growing and growing. (laughs) And then I realized like it's nothing special. It's just they feel like how we felt in our novice years and early intermediate years. They just felt like that for longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we went to the gym, you know, and every couple of months we were like, oh, wow, I got bigger here. And wow, this arm wasn't that big. And my chest wasn't so, you know, popping and all of those things. And after some time, we just stopped having those moments. Or maybe we had <laughs> it like not. every year. We noticed some minor improvements somewhere. And even then we weren't sure whether it was actually happening or we just convincing ourselves. And these people just had it for longer. Um, you know, Ronnie Coleman. Uh, which I, I think you've heard that podcast episode that he did with Joe Rogan now. I did, yeah. But he says that he was natty until age 30. Now, I personally don't have a problem believing that. I I personally would not be lying about something like that if I was him. Right. Which, of course, doesn't mean that he's not lying about it either. Like, I can come up with reasons for which he would lie about that. Maybe he wants to further his legend by, I don't know, people 
referencing him like what a freaky genetic gift he had that he was still netty at that crazy impressive physique at age 30 right um but you know if if he was natural then it is just insane and and basically what you're seeing there is someone who achieved a super impressive physique by say age 22 and then just keeps growing and growing and age 25 a bit bigger still and then age 27 a bit bigger still and yeah, I mean, we would be there as well if we kept growing after, you know, age five of training or something like that. But we just kind of stopped. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, Ronnie is truly just I, I think one of the freakiest of the freaks to ever have lived. And I, I don't know if it was 30 or, you know, whatever age. I, I do think, though, that if he stayed natural, he still would have been, I mean, one of the top naturals in the world easily. I mean, he just and, and you see that sometimes you, you see some people where, like, you just really suspect that they're not on gear. I mean, it just seems from, you know, basically their knowledge base. I mean, honestly, like, as my, I, I think Ronnie Coleman is awesome. Really like him, really like watching his stuff. But I, I think most people would agree he's not, you know, the sharpest guy. And even especially now, I mean, after all so many surgeries, he's probably on like opioids all the time and everything. So some of the things he's saying, like, you know, we're talking about the 0.33% body fat and, you know, whatever else. Yeah. And like, I, I think, like, I think you and I were talking about this, how it's probably like he doesn't even know what he's doing a lot of times. He had Chad Nichols as his coach. He probably he had his, quote, nutritionist probably doing his diet and gear. Yeah. And that's it. He just followed what was done and everything was amazing. I, I doubt he could really even talk that much about specifically what he had done during a lot of his career. He just was super like, I'm sure he wouldn't be a good coach, for example. Right. Like he is not somebody who I would ever like, I would not take free coaching from Ronnie Coleman. I mean, it would just be, I, I think, pointless. But when you're that genetically gifted, it's almost like it, it just doesn't matter. And even I, I've heard uh, another coach say that recently about I think it was on uh, it was on Dallas McCarver and Dallas McCarver. I mean, a lot of people know he was an IFBB pro. He died, I think, two years ago now. He's only like 26 years old. Um and he was on a ton of gear, but his coach literally said, like, honestly, I just made sure he didn't do anything stupid. I just took him in the gym. He just lifted what he wanted and he just responded to everything. And when you're that much of a freak, like just everything works, man. It's just kind of amazing. Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking when I was listening to what Ronnie was saying about the, yeah, it was just, just for anybody who didn't listen to it, probably a lot of the listeners have, but he said that in contest shape, he was 0.3% body fat, sometimes even negative percent body fat. And then in the off season, he was, when he was nice and fat, to quote him, he was 3% body fat. Now, that that is obviously ridiculous, um, which actually uh, you can do some fun calculations on that because obviously <laughs> if you're adding a ton of muscle, then your body fat percentage goes down if you don't put on fat. So I was making a calculation on, say, Eric Helms when he's in contest shape at, say, 5% body fat how much muscle would he have to gain to be at 1% body fat? And he would have to be like 400 kilos. <laughs> so <laughs> um, obviously, even then the math doesn't work. So obviously it's ridiculous what Ronnie said, but what's interesting about that is just how little thought he invested into the whole thing. You can see that this guy has not spent a minute thinking about what his body fat percentage is. He just did that test. The number came out. He didn't spend a minute questioning that or anything. He said, oh, yeah, well, I am lean. It makes sense that I'm negative percent body fat. And probably has, you know, we talk about volume and should you do more volume, less volume. I'm pretty sure Ronnie has no idea how much volume he does. Right, right. If he asked him, like, how many sets did you do for a given muscle group per week, I don't think he would be able to tell you. Maybe he would be able to tell you how many sets of bench press he did on Monday. But beyond that, and it's just, um, yeah, it made me think a lot just how different your perspective is when something comes easy. And yeah, I mean, there are many things in my life that are coming pretty easy and I'm not thinking about it. Like if I had to, if I like playing with Lego or something and I was putting Lego bricks on top of each other, it's like, yeah, I know I can put the bricks on top of each other. It works every time I try it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think about it. I don't quantify it. If I cannot do the Lego building exercise for a couple of months, I'm not freaking out. That's another <laughs> thing that Ronnie said that for three months after a contest, he would not train. We are freaking out as hell that we cannot train with optimal equipment. We only have our home set. Right, right. Ronnie would be like, yeah, whatever. I'll get back to it. I'll get just as big as I was before. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's crazy the difference in perspective. Yeah. And like, I mean, anybody who watches my channel knows that I talk about genetics a lot. And that was what my post was about on Instagram regarding the um, regarding the podcast with Ronnie Coleman was just that, okay, so he said he had like 21 inch arms in college. And, and you know, I can believe that I'm sure he wasn't as lean in college. So you got to consider, okay, they only grew 30 inches. But he also, I mean, first of all, the growth from three inches from 21 to 24 is obviously different than like 14 to 17 inches. 
But then also he was probably significantly leaner when he was bigger and, you know, in his prime and, and on a lot of gear. But I just think the genetic variability is so interesting because people obviously there's like a pride thing to it. Right. And when it comes to sports, more people are, you know, some people are ignorant enough to think like I could do that. But most people acknowledge that maybe they couldn't be a professional basketball player. But when it comes to muscle growth, everybody just thinks it. I think it's because they see that they can change. And they just assume it's going to be linear, right? Like I, <laughs> I think uh, I mentioned this to Brad Schoenfeld was that on Instagram, there was somebody asking about this kid, uh, if you go like official Tristan Lee on Instagram, and he's like this super, super short kid, like 410, maybe. Mm. And it almost looks like he has like, like a growth abnormality or, or something. But he is ridiculously lean. And people question if he's natural or not. I have no idea if he is or not. But he, he's very small, but he's incredibly lean. And this guy was posting on there saying, oh, man, like, are you kidding me? This is easily attainable naturally for anybody within five years of serious training. And it's like, dude, look around you. Look at even like other influencers who look nothing like this, who have been training for like 10 to 20 years. Well, lo and behold, he's been training for 10 months. And he's like, you know, I'll be there. And, and I remember somebody saying Michael Hearn was natural. This was like five years ago. And lo and behold, he was training for less than a year. Right. And it's like both of them said, like, oh, I'll get there soon. I'm just going to like work my ass off and do this. And it's like, it's great that you're motivated to do that. And it's not like you don't even have to have the argument with these people because time will prove them wrong, right? Like yeah. you just can let them do their own thing. And in three to four years, they'll realize, oh, wait a minute. I'm only, you know, I only have another 10 pounds of muscle than I did three years ago. And that's slowing down. And then they'll, they'll find out the truth. And that'll just, like I said, I, I don't even really bother engaging in those arguments. But the reason I was bringing that up is because it's really interesting to see it because you can change it. Whereas like people understand there's these massive genetic variations in height, right? So if somebody like you can have a full grown adult male who is four, eight, and you can have a fully grown adult male who is seven, 10, yeah. right? Same, you know, <laughs> human species and everything like that. Why wouldn't you be able to have absurd differences in muscle growth potential, right? Or anything. Um, you know, there's, so you see that and people think, oh, how could this be natural? It's like, no, I really do believe there are just some freaky freaks out there when it comes to muscle growth. And like you said, the, the easier it comes to them, the less that they really think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, although probably a lot of people are listening to that and are hitting like Jason Blaha heights in their argumentation and will say things like, well, Dave, if you think that that's possible naturally, then why aren't you that big? Um, so let's not let's not reach that level people but you know just like what you said about height i mean you know who was it um robert pershing wadlow i think that was his name the guy who was like eight foot 11 mm -hmm. so 275 centimeters or something like that and he died at age 22 in some stupid foot infection and there the when he died there was no sign of him slowing down in growth Really? Uh, so he had that pituitary disorder mm -hmm. or something, which, you know, just made him grow endlessly. So probably if he lived another two years, he would have been well over like three meters. So, you know, if that can exist, why can't there be some sort of myostatin deficiency or some of those mechanisms in the body that stop you from growing as much as you would want to? And steroids, like see some of those mechanisms like why isn't it conceivable that someone could actually grow that much um and that, like i actually saw a video on um ronnie coleman's uh, like steroid cycle is that the one where he was talking with lee priest or um not lee priest uh tom platz, tom platz yeah. yeah yeah this guy uh posted it on youtube um and it's uh yeah i mean really the dosage is nothing um i mean from what i know like one like up to one gram is sort of the recreational dosage range and then the pros are like in the one to three gram range and then there are those insane guys that are taking like up to t 10 grams or something right and i think ronnie was like not even two grams or something like yeah it's a lot but it's not it's not like he took 10 times as much drugs as the other guys by any means so right and i think some of those guys are something that like i I don't really understand is when you get some of these like I, on that podcast I listened to with uh, Skip and somebody else he was talking with and they were saying, yeah, you know, I think the amateurs are the ones who I consistently see taking the most, you know, those guys who are trying to get their pro cards and they're just really trying to get it and they're like, blasting away. You know, I think the, the top pros are the ones who aren't even taking that much. And to me, you know, I don't know these pros, obviously, so I guess that's possible. But I feel like how could that be true? Because like their argument is 
these amateurs who don't quite have the genetics are using incredible amounts of gear to try to get their pro card. Whereas the guys who with really good genetics, they don't need that to get their pro card. And that makes sense. But that would be just to get to a certain point. But when you're talking about the top of the top, it comes back to the whole like genetics versus work ethic thing, right? You can't just have genetics. You can't just have the work ethic. You need to have both. And it's like, from an IFBB standpoint, wouldn't the guys who have the amazing genetics and use the most gear do the best? You know what I mean? That, that's the only reason I question like the light cycles of Dorian Yates and Ronnie Coleman. Maybe they truly just didn't need it. But I would think like, wouldn't you have at some point push it even further? I mean, unless you were like placing number one, like they were, but wouldn't placing number two, wouldn't they be using incredible amounts to beat the number one guy? I would think, you know, like a big Rami or something like that, who just can't win um, he comes in like third to fifth every year. Like, wouldn't he be pushing even more to try to, you know, actually take out that number one person? Again, that, that's, I don't know that whole world and, and those individuals or anything. It just, that's just the way it seems to me. So I remember watching a podcast episode on Ryan Solomon's. He's working for the Revive Stronger crew. Um, mm-hmm. On his YouTube channel, there was an interview with Broderick Chavez, who is this drug guru guy. Uh, super funny dude, by the way. Um, and he, so he was asked about, like, what's the deal there? Like, is that true that the guys that are the most genetically gifted, they don't need a lot of drugs? And I think Broderick said that usually the guys that respond well to lower dosages also have worse side effects faster. So it, it might be one of those things, like in the case of training volume, where... You know, there are people like Jeff Alberts who respond very well to a small amount of volume. And it's not the case that if he did even more volume that he would just grow faster. It would actually be that he would just get injured more because he gets all the response he needs from that small amount of volume and more just causes more problems. So it might be something like that with drugs. But again, I it, this c- could be complete bullshit. I don't know. Yeah, um, it makes sense. I mean, that's a good point yeah. with Jeff. You know, more volume didn't seem to help him. And I know he has tried it. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing I, I did like about Ronnie in this interview is that he is very open about the fact. And I think most IFBB pros that are standing in the Olympia stage tend to be open about the fact that he had amazing, amazing genetics for bodybuilding. Um, and unlike Except Mr. B-Pack. Yeah, unlike <laughs> Ben freaking Pokolsky, who, um, I mean, he is... He must be in the top three most annoying fitness professionals of all time. Just, <laughs> just, just the way he speaks is already enough to like rile me up. Like he's right up there with Thomas Delauer, who also, as soon as he starts speaking, yeah. I'm already annoyed, which is quite a feat to pull off. <laughs> but um, yeah, like he insists on this fact that he has just uh, shit genetics, and uh, I, I don't know why. I don't know how he doesn't see that. That's like two mutually exclusive things. Like you looking like that and having shit genetics. It doesn't go together. You get it? <laughs> like, if you have shit genetics, you will never look like the way you do. Yeah, the other, like, if um, another time we can cover the whole topic of sort of like refeeds and uh, not not so much refeeds and diet breaks, but more so just nonlinear uh, dieting and, and, and stuff like that. Because, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm always thinking about how to make dieting and just maintaining a neutral energy balance in the long term more palatable as a concept to more more people and more more so something that they can foresee doing for a longer period of time because i just see it being so overwhelming for many people but i don't know maybe for some people it actually works to have like one super high calorie day then two low calorie days like that I, you send me a guy with a pretty good physique who's doing that regularly yeah. so maybe we can talk about that another time yeah for sure all right, man. Uh, so yeah, this was a cool discussion. So thanks for coming on. Um, do you want to plug your resources quickly? Sure. So my podcast is Brains and Gains. That is on YouTube as well as pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. And then uh, Instagram is just at Dave underscore McConey. Uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me there. It seems like I've been getting, I don't know why the like uptick of people are just bored or whatever, but I've been getting a lot of DMs there. Um, so if I don't get to it, you know, you can send me another one or try to reach out. I look at like all the comments on YouTube. Um, so I've had some people just comment there with questions. So either one works. I just wanted to say you have an amazing commenter uh, on your YouTube <laughs> channel called Genetic Beast. And I, yeah. I just want to address you, Genetic Beast, if you're listening to that. Please come over to my channel as well and comment there as well. Because um, <laughs> I love reading your comments. <laughs> He's a big fan. He's, I don't think he misses a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has a lot of interesting theories about my, my nuclear domain and whatever. Um, so... Always interesting to learn new things. Yeah, right. Um, Anyway, man, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, we'll chat soon. Yeah, absolutely.